This is Novel Approach, episode 13, for September 8th, 2022. With your host, James Soden. And special guest, Catherine Gordon. to The Novel Approach, the podcast about creative writing. Each week we talk to guests who may be writers, editors, librarians, directors, or producers. I'm Jim Soden, the host for this podcast, and our goal is to talk with other people who love storytelling, whether in books, films, oral presentations, uh, poems, or other podcasts. My guest today is one who was with us last week. Uh, For those who uh, who are keeping up with our podcast, and she is Catherine Gordon. Uh, She's a professor of English at St. Louis Community College at Florissant Valley. Uh, We talked about uh, uh, one of her books, a study of uh, two um, Scottish women poets from earlier in the uh, 20th century. And then uh, today, we're going to talk about uh, Katie's own stories and uh, poems. Um, So welcome, Katie. It's good to have you back. It's lovely to be here. Thanks so much for having me. So so after your Scottish experience, um, then you came back, you... um, uh, worked, uh, I know, for a while at Washington University uh, as an assistant to uh, Dr. Danforth when he was the chancellor uh, and started teaching at Florissant um, Valley. At some point in there, you also began working on a, an MFA at uh, UMSL, uh, a program run by, uh, at that time, by Mary Troy, who was a tremendous influence on uh, a number of uh, local uh, writers, professors, uh, and so on. Um, And so I'd like for us today to talk about uh, some of the things that you write and what you uh, envision as your approach, uh, the things that you're interested in, in terms of structure, themes, um, characters, uh, and so on. So would you like to break it down, talk about stories first and then poems or uh, blend them back and forth because of uh, the content? Um, And maybe start by telling us what drew you to, uh, uh, first of all, to doing your own writing. Sure. So I'll try to make sure I got I got those questions all. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I've always wanted to write ever since I was a child. Um, And I would, you know, imagine the life of the writer being, you know, a a typewriter and a beautiful view that you could just take with you and go wherever you were going. I imagine that's what a writer's life was like. Um, And of course, that's an image from an earlier era. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but um, 
but I certainly always loved the way that words sound and the way that you can express incredibly fine points if you have the right word. And, and as a child, I read um, the wonderful children's book, The Phantom Tollbooth. I don't know if you've read that. It's uh, by Norton Juster. It's this child's journey into a, a landscape that's full of linguistic puns and, and in-jokes and things. But there's a, a description of, of a witch, W-H-I-C-H, who eats um, punctuation marks, sugared punctuation marks. And there's just this lovely scene of her eating them. And I used to think, of course, words and punctuation have a taste or, or a sound or a, a, a kind of strength beyond just a casual thing on the page. So I've always been interested in that. Um, as an undergrad, of course, I I was imagining that the approach to being a writer and a teacher would be um, scholarly work, the analytical work of other people's work. Um, but I also was able to uh, do my own writing. I was lucky to be encouraged by a lot of wonderful professors. So one of my professors said to me, you know, you really should look at the work of Louise Bogan. Um, and she's a poet who writes very formal writing. She was uh, the poetry editor for The New Yorker for years and years and years and kind of and shaped kind of contemporary American poetics in that um, in that environment because of her her lasting influence as the editor. So I was recommended that I read her work. So I immersed myself in that. And that for me nurtured a love of formal writing, um, writing in the say, for example, the sonnet. I really found a, just a love of the kind of compression that a short form like the sonnet, which has 14 lines and 10 syllables per line. So something really glorious about having that tiny space to capture a, a, a naughty philosophical problem. Naughty, K-N-O-T-T-Y, not naughty mm. way. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But it could be both. It could be both. Could be um, both. So I, <laughs> I became intrigued by that. And I, I had sort of that that love all the way through the graduate work. And then eventually I came back to do an MFA, as you mentioned, and that was a chance for me to, to really invest time and energy into writing, um, writing my own creative writing. So uh, mainly poems, mainly poems, which was glorious to have that chance. I think I, if given um, an independent fortune, I would spend a lot of time in school because I just love the thrill of being in classes. Um, but eventually <laughs> one, one must uh, graduate and go on and do something after that. Um, so I've, I've had that split between the part of me that wants to do the scholarly work and then the part of me that wants to do creative writing. And so I, I'm lucky, I'm very lucky in that I can do both when I want to. Um, so that's exciting. <laughs> Well, you're one of the few poets that I can honestly say um, I have found in unusual and unexpected places. <laughs> that sounds intriguing. <laughs> yes. There I was one morning uh, at probably 6.30 or 7 o'clock on the Metrolink heading to work. And my eyes were just about open. Uh, and as I got them fully open, I looked up above the seats across the aisle from me and they had all these ads. And then suddenly here's one of the placards and it has a poem by Katie Gordon. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you 
you know, it, that was such a, a wonderful program. I loved that they had when they had poems up because it gives you something to, to think about when you're you're riding on the Metrolink. And I wish they did that more often. I it's a it's a wonderful program. Um, I know they do that in other cities as well. And that's, you know, one of the the exciting bits of getting on the London Underground is when they have a poem there, you get time to kind of to spend a little time thinking about it, curling up with it, trying to figure it out. So that's funny. <laughs> well, you know, I, I kept looking uh, as each time I rode uh, to see if there were other uh, poets that I knew or other poems that uh, I could read. Yours was the only one I'd ever seen. Oh, and I thought, well, well, this is interesting, you know, because I, I at the time I told you about it and, and you had explained that uh, it was a program that um, uh, Metrolink or the group itself that does the buses and the, the Metrolinks was doing. But uh, yours was the only one I'd ever seen there. So, <laughs> so mysterious. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No. So uh, they they did a special one just for you, apparently. So, so. Whoa. <laughs> uh, you mentioned uh, the uh, challenge and the joy of uh, writing a a poem, a struct with the a structure that is very tight and requires compression, like the sonnet. Uh, did you prefer the English sonnet or the Italian sonnet? Oh well, now I liked all of them. I, I'm always intrigued by the the challenge of of the Elizabethan form, which gives you three quatrains to pose different angles of the problem and only two lines to solve it. That to <laughs> right. me, you know, you really have to be incredibly witty to get that la that couplet to snap, and I, that's one that I struggle with because it's sometimes having a concise ending is is challenging um the italian form which gives you you know uh, eight lines to kind of imagine the problem and six lines to solve it sometimes that's a little easier when it's something particularly thorny that you're grappling with but it, the italians rhyme more readily than than we do in english because of the way that the language is structured so they have a little bit of an advantage and if you're actually speaking italian um so Sometimes it's also just the challenge of trying to find something that will rhyme and not sound contrived. <laughs> right. Yeah. The, the not sounding contrived is always the the, the problem. You expect um, a, a really good poet to be able to do these complicated structures and rhyme schemes. And then in reading it, you, it uh, comes across as though. Well, they said what they wanted. My gollies, look, the structure is there and the rhyme is there. How did that happen? <laughs> and it happens through a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, well, and I, you know, it's funny because the wonderful poet A.E. Stallings, who writes in form with a kind of grace that is astonishing. There's been times when I have read a poem by her and I thought, oh, that's a that's a lovely poem. And then I went to teach it. And then in the process of teaching, I thought, oh, my, uh, look at that. I just realized <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's a pentoum, you know, <laughs> or, oh, oh, that's a, you know, a, some other kind of form that suddenly I think I have to stop a little bit in class and think, oh my gosh, that is an astonishing work of art. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So um, she is, is just, is, 
is an amazing um, model for anyone who writes in form to be able to strive for that kind of clarity. That because her language is on the surface, you know, it's clear. It doesn't sound at all like she's shoehorned a word in. Um, and then suddenly you realize, yeah, the amount of work that I'm sure goes into crafting those poems. Um, and, you know, anyone who's tried to write a Sestina or a Pantoum um, will appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> or for some of us, just trying to write any kind of poem, structured or not, is very Well, absolutely. I mean, that's it's not to say that free verse poems are any easier. I think sometimes, you know, you, you think you've, well, I think sometimes people think that writing a poem, you just sit down and you write whatever words you want. Um, but it's it's always more difficult than that. <laughs> you have to yeah. audition every single word to make sure it needs to be just exactly there. <laughs> yes, what's the term? Um, le mot juste? Yes. The, 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 the right word, the just word, the, the exact word. Yes. That, that, yeah, that precise, the only one that could possibly be there and still and work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, well, okay, so um, you've uh, tried the the different forms and 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 appreciate the challenge. What about themes and and characters? Uh, do you write uh, mostly from uh, uh, your poetry from a, a kind of a first person? point of view? Are they more third person? Um, what kinds of themes uh, do you like um, and, and find that uh, are more enjoyable to work with or at least more uh, fulfilling? So I, I'm intrigued, um, first of all, I think by the flexibility that poetry gives you and fiction too, where you can put on a mask or a persona and be whomever you would like. So there's that thrill of saying, today I'm going to imagine what it is like to be um, a roll of tape, um, which can <laughs> allow you to kind of step out of your own neuroses and into something else. And I, I, for me, that's very, that's liberating. You can uh, just imagine. And it also, it, it's, it reminds me, I'm trying to think of the way it was described, um, the poet, Gwyneth Lewis was describing um, this game that she plays. I forgot the name, what she calls it, but imagining, first of all, that something is very, very small and then imagining it's very, very large and, and how that changes the perspective. And so if you, you know, assume a different perspective, it changes the way that you notice the world around you. So for me, that's exciting to be able to, to shape shift and move into whatever shape I would like. Um, that also is a challenge too, to think about, okay, how does your language change if you, well, I mean, maybe a roll of tape is not the best example, but how does your language change if you are um, a different character? And Mark Doty's wonderful poem, Golden Retrievals, is a great example of that, where he has a poem told by a dog, and it's a, a dog imagining, you know, what the humans around him are doing. He just wants to play fetch. <laughs> You know? And it's that kind of exuberance that he gives the voice of the speaker to reflect what he imagines a dog might be like. Um, so I love that, that poetry gives us that chance to be whomever we would like. Um, I also like the challenge of, of trying to describe a place 
um, that it is in as an evocative way as possible, as a way of, of being in that place. So for me, landscape is tremendously interesting, um, trying to figure out what it is about the way that landscape, it appears, smells, tastes, uh, what it sounds like. Um, that to me is, a, is a, an exciting challenge. So when I'm writing, I'm trying to imagine how can I describe this so that somebody who's not there um, while they're reading this can feel like they're there. Um, I'm also interested in um, trying to understand the world around me, just the way any of us are. Um, and sometimes through writing about it, I can figure out you know, how something works. Um, I tend to write in the second or third person, although occasionally I'll write in the first person. Um, and occasionally I'll write in the first person, but not in my own voice, if that makes sense. So mm -hmm. I sort of shift around a little bit. Um, and, you know, I don't typically start off the day by saying I'm going to write today, I'm going to write a villanelle. Um, I'll just start writing and then see what happens. And sometimes it seems to be that there's something that is repeating. And some I think, well, maybe I'll play with this a little bit. And sometimes I try to make things into a formal poem and they just don't fit into the form and I have to take the form off. And then I think, oh, well, that's much better. <laughs> you know? So it's, it's a little bit of um, tweaking. And I think revision is something that that I actually, I love, I love the art of revision. And I do think it's an art um, because, you know, that what comes on the page first is often a gift and then it needs cleaning up and what you do with it can be exciting as well. Um, so I've grown to appreciate that as an, as an older writer. That's one of the questions that often comes up when you look at writers who've uh, done a lot of, of revising through the years and uh, so you get a uh, an addition uh, of their work that will show two three or four revisions um, and, and there are many writers who have done that um, Walt Whitman for example with uh, Leaves of Grass um, when you look at um, a publication of it, either in an anthology or a, a single volume, they always indicate which particular one this was. You know, mm -hmm. was this the 1855 or was this the 1891 uh, edition? Uh, and I know the question always comes up, does the revision make it better? Uh, or do, do you sometimes lose the spontaneity or the uh, originality that was there at the beginning? And when you, uh, when uh, a poet revises so much, do you, yeah. do you find with your own that sometimes you'll do a lot of revising, then you think, hmm, I'll go back to the beginning? I definitely have had that. And sometimes I can't revise something if it's really if it was written a, a while before and in a different position in my life, then I sometimes can't revise it. I said, you know, I'm not going to even attempt. It's not, I'm a different person than who I was at that time when I wrote it originally and re-inhabiting that space feels unnatural. Um, I'm not going to. And so sometimes some things just can't be revised and they just have to sit as they are. And I do, do think that some things can be over-revised as well. I, I think that's a problem that 
um, I mean, for me, the art of revision is fascinating. And I, I did some work as an undergraduate, again, back on uh, mentioning Louise Bogan, looking at her revision, which was fascinating because her poem started off in the earlier drafts being incredibly personal. And then she stripped and stripped away at them until they were refined into something that was more about something else, somebody else. It was not spoken by her. Um, and so that you can see the, the push towards push away from the personal into a much more um, uh, safe kind of space that's not in her own voice. That to me was fascinating watching that process in someone else's writing uh, because I was literally going through the the handwritten drafts in the archives from the very first one scrawled out on her paper to what appeared in the book. And for me, I could see that process of, of uh, stripping away the, the personal so that it was almost not impersonal, not in a way to suggest not caring, but a kind of cool marble kind of exterior as opposed to the much more raw and bubbling thing <laughs> to mix <laughs> metaphors terribly um, that it started off as. And that to me is, is instructive. And ditto for uh, Elizabeth Bishop's poem, One Art, which is just such a perfect poem. It's just, it's so beautiful. You can't imagine it being anything other than beautiful and then you read the earlier drafts and you think whew <laughs> this was not great <laughs> and that to me is always consoling when I read I read the earlier drafts and think well it is possible <laughs> to just strive for that when a poet moves from starting out with um, a poem that's extremely personal and then moves to that more um uh, polished uh, glass-like uh, surface uh, through revising. Do you think that uh, helps or hinders um, any sense of universality for the reader? Well, that's a really good question. You know, I think it depends on on the individual writer. I mean, some writers are much more confessional and much more likely to um, to write something that is raw and um, on the surface in a way that that's part of what they're celebrating. I mean, I'm thinking of somebody like, um, I guess, you know, Sylvia Plath. Well, she may be not the best example. Um, Anne Sexton or um, Sharon Olds. These poems that are that are that celebrate that kind of raw uh, emotion, and that's something that readers can connect to in some ways. But then there are other poets who who see that the best way to suggest a kind of uh, a universality of experience is to strip away the individual voice of the speaker and make it more a kind of chorus of, of voices. This could be any, any number of people. It doesn't have to be the same gender or age or, you know, orientation of, of the speaker, but can just the experience of going through that. So, I mean, for, it depends really on what the, the poet, them, you know, himself or herself or themselves wants, but also what the reader's looking for. And some readers, are, you know, are drawn to confessional poetry that seems almost like it's bleeding on the page, you know. Right. <laughs> some people are drawn to that and say, I, I feel this is connecting to me. Others sort of look at that and say, that's too much of that individual uh, speaker's voice that is nothing to do with me. I don't want to do that. So I think it's it's both the writer and the reader. And I think it's a kind of conversation or a dance that the writer and the reader do together um, to figure out if there's a way to, to connect with each other. Um, and I think some, some poems, uh, you know, don't connect with a reader 
at some point in that reader's life, but then later on, they will find great solace in it. Um, just in the way that anyone, when you read a book at a different age, you get something different from it. Did that answer your question? <laughs> yes, definitely. Um, and, and I completely agree. Um, and I wasn't it um, T.S. Eliot who said that he had read um, Hamlet as a young man and had one view of it and then came back to it when he was I think 55 years old and uh, had a completely different experience and a different appreciation uh, for it. And that seems to be something that uh, that happens to a lot to, I guess, most people when they read things like that. You know, I've, I've um, read the same kind of comment that uh, various people have made about films that they saw early in life and then uh, saw it again many years later and thought, oh, you know, sometimes it was, gee whiz, did I really like that? Or sometimes <laughs> it's, my goodness, that has more depth and, and uh, insight than I even realized back then. So I think that, and I think that's very much the case. I mean, that book that I mentioned earlier, The Phantom Tollbooth, reading that as a child, you you perhaps don't catch all of the jokes or all of the linguistic play um, and just read it as a, a cracking good tale of a kid trying to find his way through a mysterious landscape. But when you mm -hmm. read it as an adult, you then maybe are more attuned to the linguistic play. I mean, there's an officer called Shrift who's very short um, and so they sort of joke about having a short shrift um, and there's all kinds of other jokes all the way through where they have to jump to this place called conclusions. Um, just all kinds of, of puns and, and play that an adult reading it will appreciate and also kind of celebrate the uh, the way that you can read that narrative on two different levels as a, you know, for purely for plot and for the story and then also for the way that it's constructed. I, I love that when you can go back and read a text again and again and say, oh, look at this, I keep finding new things. But I also have had that experience where you see a film or you read a book that you loved previously and you think, God, my taste was terrible. <laughs> what did I like about that? <laughs> well, you know, the, the um, experience that you're describing there with the, um, the, the young person reading the, the book, uh, if you take a very famous example like uh, Lewis Carroll's uh, Alice in Wonderland, um, presumably the story has been when he published it was changed a little bit from what it was when he told the, the young girls on a summer afternoon and so on. But there have been all kinds of um, uh, books written interpreting all of the details that he put in and the, the games and the math and everything else, uh, which uh, speaks to that, that same kind of idea that uh, you can read something when you're young and it, you get a certain um, group of insights and then you read it as an adult and there are many, many more uh, different kinds of insights that uh, that you have. So, And now I'm always curious, too, if the writer in writing it is is 
intentionally is aware of that that split in the in the way that someone reads it or if it's just coming about because of the writer's own gloriously complicated mind um i, I don't know and I, any writer you talk to will give you a, a, a sort of a shifty <laughs> answer <laughs> right <laughs> look over there <laughs> i don't remember who it was now but there is one very famous writer who was asked that question about essentially writer intention and you know if you're trying to interpret a work uh who knows how best to interpret what it means um, other than the writer and uh, in this case he said i'm always as surprised as anyone else <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and you know the, the way that uh, our minds work, um, if you take what uh, some of the psychologists have said about uh, the unconscious uh, area of our minds and the way that stories develop there, um, it, it makes good sense that um, a writer will come up with things and put it down and not realize all of the um, specific implications of it and and they're going to have the same kind of experience um, coming back to it at, at other ages and recognizing things that they didn't uh, uh, when they wrote it particularly if they wrote it when they were younger so yeah I think that's a really good point and it's, it's interesting when you you do talk to someone who published early um, some people will just disavow their earliest book. I had a, a wonderful professor who I asked him about his first book and he said, oh, you can't find it anywhere. And if you do, let me know, I'll burn it. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know what I know. didn't get to read it. I have no idea why he was so affronted by it, but apparently it didn't live up to his standards as a, as a more senior poet. <laughs> right. So, um, since you write both stories and poetry, uh, and poems. Do you find that uh, you're ever interested in writing a longer poem that's more, uh, that tells a story in, in much the same kind of way that a, a short story will tell? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm so interested in, in narrative in general. And so sometimes, yeah, I do feel like the, the poems themselves strung together can be a kind of of a kind of narrative not unlike a short story um mm -hmm. and there certainly are uh, lots of writers who've who've done that where they make collections that tell a story um i'm thinking of um there's a wonderful collection ultima thule by davis mccombs that came out a couple of well probably 15 years ago um and the first half of the book is 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 a narrative about um, an enslaved man who was a tour guide in Mammoth Caves. And each of the poems is a reflection from something of his experience. And it's it's just absolutely stunning. It's so beautiful. Um, and and because you, you have that kind of thrill of reading a story, um, but also the, the excitement of seeing how the poet captures that in, in poetic meter sometimes in, in, in you know, short line, um, lyrical expressions. So that's exciting and being able to do both. Um, I don't, you know, I can, I can see where the, 
the desire to write long form poems has come. And there's certainly lots of interesting work being done in that now. Um, but I'm also mindful that sometimes the poem just needs to be a, a little glimpse, just a kind of a peek through the window um, of something that's happening in that room. And you only get to see it through different little windows in the or apertures into that space. So sometimes it's it's nice to have some spaces there that aren't explained. So everything doesn't have to be paradise lost and paradise <laughs> regained. <laughs> well, probably not for me. I think I think that's coming out of a I don't know what kind of energy produces that that kind of the immensity of that work. But um, yes, <laughs> not, not at the moment anyway. <laughs> not at the moment. <laughs> well, we're ending the getting near the end of our time, Katie. Um, and I'd like to know if there's any sort of last um, thoughts that you have, some ideas uh, about creative writing, about poems, about stories, uh, the whole process of storytelling that um that I haven't asked and that we haven't talked about. Well, I think one thing maybe, well, there's always, always all kinds of things to talk about, but one of the things that I think is really interesting is that people from my, you know, I'm thinking of maybe two generations before me, maybe a generation before me, uh, memorized poems as part of their education. That was just part of what it meant to be a kid, you know, to be a student is you, and oftentimes in a kind of painful way, like you will memorize this poem and recite it in front of the class, or we will all recite together, you know, and things that maybe make poetry painful, but, and it shouldn't be. Um, but I think we're missing that kind of um, integration of poetry into our everyday landscape where it's become so much in many ways, pushed to the side as a kind of elitist thing. Um, and I mean, there are definitely efforts to to erase that kind of division. But oftentimes when students, for example, come to class, they've been told poetry is is hard. It's hard. It has to, it has to be fancy. It has to be complicated. It has to be opaque. Um, and so they don't have a, a sense that it can be the joyful funny poems that, you know, uh, you learn as a kid, you know, that we've sort of gotten away from that, that the way that poetry integrates itself into the landscape. And I, I just was curious to see what you think about ways that, that people can bring poetry into their life in a way that doesn't seem contrived, or doesn't seem like they're suddenly going to go off and read the wasteland somewhere, you know, how can, <laughs> how can, how can people bring poetry into their life in a way that's, that, is not scary. Well, I think there, if you look at uh, children's literature and the, some of the collections where uh, you have the uh, little sayings that children can do and the, the rhymes and everything, uh, I think encouraging children to learn some of those and then to experiment with their own. You know, it doesn't have to be exactly uh, the way someone else did it. Um, also, looking at uh, the, the whole process of introducing poetry to uh, students, uh, one of the things that I like to do is point out to them that most good rock music that they're <laughs> so excited about really uh, is poetry. 
Uh, you know, if you take uh, anything by the Beatles, uh, the things that John and um, Paul were writing are beautiful poems. Uh, or if you take, um, oh, what's his name? Um, that uh, Tim has that poster in his office over his desk. I don't Tim, know that I've Tim seen it. Yeah, I don't know that I've seen Have I seen it? Um, I'll think about it, but unfortunately, okay. probably after we uh, stop. Um, but uh, e even if you take um, rap music, um, oh, absolutely. There, there you have, you know, the, uh, the rhythm, you have the rhyme, you have images, and students uh, are exposed to all of these things, and somehow they they only see poetry as um, Shakespeare and Chaucer and Milton and other people and uh, have been told, well, you know, th this has to be interpreted in such and such a way. And what I always try to do is, is you get them to, first of all, try to read it uh, and just get a feel for the music. Mm -hmm. And and then look at the, the concrete images. If it says that the sun is shining and, and uh, it's hot even in the shade, then go with it, you know. Now, <laughs> it's possible that a poet can start at that point with um, a, a specific image and a specific sound and then also be suggesting other things but you know at, at least start with the um, the sound as you hear it and start with the the clear image that's there um, and then you can go ahead and talk about interpreting and supposedly reading between the lines and and all of that other stuff that I think really does put students off uh, when when you try to introduce poetry to them. As, as children, they enjoy playing with language anyway. Absolutely. You know, and you hate Absolutely. to see them lose that um, uh, enjoyment and willingness to, to try different things. So. It's grieving. I mean, working with kids in, in the past, if you ask them to write a poem, they just say, all right, I'll they sit down and do it. If you ask mm -hmm. an adult, oftentimes they'll say, oh, well, I'm not really that good. I don't really know. Oh, this is my, you know, and there's lots of bracketing with apologies. And, and for me, I'm so happy when somebody will say, you know, I've not tried this before, but I'll just see if I can try this poem. Um, and I think the frustration is that there's a gap between that love of linguistic play in children and then the kind of fear um, that adults have of not being precise or not getting the word right or not having the right word. Um, and I, I'm always excited when somebody says, oh, I just found this new word today. It's fabulous. Um, because that's that's an extra, you know, bit of color in the, in the you know, your, your paint box to have something when you know that exact precise word for for example a student of mine came in with a word that means the smell of the ground after a rainfall which
which I think is just such a fabulous, it's petrichor. And so she, she pronounced that to the class and everybody was saying, oh, that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, and having that kind of wonderful specific language is, is a real gift. Yes. On the other hand, you have um, some adults who know all of that, have this uh, love of uh, language and an appreciation of poetry and literature. Uh, and it doesn't all have to be, you know, what we think of as the classics. And yet um, they just aren't poets or story writers. And I, I know one personally very well. I wrote one poem in my life that uh, was uh, decent, uh, standing on a windy street corner, uh, changing buses downtown uh, in my early days at Florissant Valley. Uh, it, was, it was October. I was there by the old American theater because that's where I had to change from a a Carondelet bus to a Florissant bus. And uh, I, the wind was blowing and the dust was pull, pulling things up off the street. And, and so um, this poem just came to me kind of uh, yeah. like you read about. And uh, that's the only one I've ever been able to produce. And I lost it many years ago. You lost it after all that setup. You're not going to tell us what it was. Must oh, much to my chagrin, I did. Oh, I have geez. looked and looked and looked for that poem, and and I, I cannot cre recreate it. It just, you know, it was um, a result of the circumstances and the, my age and and changing buses at six thirty in the morning uh, downtown, or probably earlier than that uh, oh my goodness <laughs> i can see the scene now that's you set it up so beautifully well you have to find that poem and show it to me <laughs> if i find it i'll make a copy and sign it for you katie absolutely <laughs> <laughs> okay anything else that you want to share i, I think i've talked your ear off both your oh, ears no, both ears are still <laughs> here and and functioning well this has been a lot of fun uh, and I'm sure that um, our listeners uh, have enjoyed it as much as I have um, and I really do thank you for being here last week uh, to talk about uh, the Scottish women poets and uh, the book that you had written uh, and then today talking about uh, uh, your own writing and um, your, your views of poetry and, and storytelling. Um, so I, I do thank you very much for being uh, here on the program. Well, thank you for having me. It was a real delight. Thank you. You're quite welcome. And so I want to remind our listeners that uh, if they enjoy these podcasts, they can subscribe wherever they get their podcasts and that uh, today's uh, podcast was uh, brought to you by uh, Bearhouse 7 Productions, Something Different Network, and Uncommon Sense Radio 4.0, the podcast. And we look forward to seeing you uh, auditorially next week. So thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.